Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, everyone. This is Charlie Gilkey. I'm super excited to have Susan Piver on the Creative Giant show today. Susan is really one of my favorite people. Um, she teaches about mindfulness and compassion and self-awareness um, at susanpiver.com. She's the author of eight books, one of them bestseller. The bestseller is The Hard Questions. What I love most about her work is, you know, in my mind, she's kind of the Martha Stewart for, for Buddhism in the sense of um, she's really approachable um, and she's not nearly what you might think of as like a Buddhist practitioner. And we might get into sort of, you know, the, the stereotypes around people who who are in mindfulness and Buddhism. Um, and so I, this is going to be a really great, great show. She started the Open Heart Project. What was this, two years ago now, Susan? Almost three. Almost three. Wow, time flies. So almost three years ago. And the Open Heart Project is currently a no-cost membership for people who want to develop a practice around mindfulness, compassion, and self-awareness. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the Open Heart Project because I really want to talk about why she developed it and why she came up with it and, and what fires her up about it. So um, really somebody you should check out. I think you're going to enjoy today's conversation. So Susan, thanks so much for joining us today. My, my pleasure. It's always great to talk to you, Charlie. I'm happy right. to talk to you. Um, before before we started this conversation, there were some birds chirping in the background, and now I kind of miss them. But don't don't change a thing. It's uh, it's fantastic. No, don't worry, they'll come back. All right. So let's talk first about the Open Heart Project and your journey actually to starting the Open Heart Project because you actually have a very rich and um, varied history before you got into um, doing what you're doing now as a music um, producer and working in the music industry. So tell us a little bit about how you went from there to your current instantiation of yourself. Oh, gosh, that's a long period of time. I will really make this, I will not make this story too long, but I, I yeah, I worked in the music business for until the early 2000s. And then I, the last job I had was at a company called Tommy Boy, which is a hip hop label. But I was not doing hip hop. I was not working on the hip hop side. They'd had, they had had very successful years and they wanted to start a record label that produced things for people who are interested in spirituality, quote unquote. It, there was like the sense that there's, you know, back then I think the number was there were 6 million people doing yoga and now there's like 26 million people doing yoga. And there's this growing audience of people that are interested in going deeper in their life and no one is serving them with music products, quote unquote. And I, I was working at a different record company and I was a, had become a Buddhist and I knew Tom and I was like, oh, that's my job. So he hired me and I moved to New York City and I would sit around a conference table with him and other people going, wait, that sounded like a really good idea, but what are we supposed to actually do? Yeah. <laughs> what would these music products, quote unquote, look like? Because, you know, we don't want to do new, new age music. We don't want to do things that sell 10,000 copies, which back then was very little. We want to do things that sell 250,000 copies. So round and around and around. I, anyway, blah, blah. I started to, to do projects with best-selling authors 
who like Deepak Chopra and Andrew Weil, that people already had an audience and asking them if they ever wanted to do anything on the audio side. And that was a new thing at the time. And I sort of pioneered this book plus CD mm -hmm. thing that uh, was new. And anyway, blah, blah, and the whole idea didn't work out. But I, I got to know writers and agents through this process. And then I was getting married, and I was thinking, I why would I do this to someone I like? Because <laughs> I never really saw people being too happy about the whole getting married, about the whole marriage thing. They seem happy about getting married. Anyway, so I wrote down these questions to ask my boyfriend about our life. Not about, do you love me? But are we going to keep our money in the same bank account? Those are the kinds of things that people seem to argue about more than, do you, do you love me? Um, and then someone said, oh, that would be a good book idea. And then I said to one of the agents I happen to know, do you think it would? And he said, I don't know. And here's how you write a proposal. Boom, fast forward, you know, a couple of years, I'm on the Oprah show and it becomes a New York Times bestseller. And in that instant, I became a relationships expert. <laughs> <laughs> Not, but suddenly I would see, you know, interviews with myself and I would be, labeled as a relationships expert. I what? Anyway, so I got the opportunity from that to write more books and slowly, slowly with each project, each thing I produced or authored myself, I got closer and closer to what I'm doing now, which is basically just talking to people about their minds and hearts. That's fantastic. Wanted to pull out that, that one of the recurring themes that, that have happened from the guest on the Create Giant show is that the life that they live now is almost a complete accident in the sense of it's most of them did not sit out. No, I'm going to be a writer. <laughs> it's like, Oh, and it kind of emerges. Right. Um, and everything, then there's go. go ahead. No, everything in my whole life has been some kind of perfect storm of, of backing into something, meeting a lightning strike. Oh, okay, that's what I'm doing now, I guess. And whenever I read things from people, it's like, if you want to accomplish this, you know, take these five steps. I'm like, I don't know what world those people are in because I never had any experience from making a plan and then going out and executing it. I mean, I've made many, many plans and executed many things, but they never led to what I was actually planning in the first place <laughs> yeah it's funny and, and susan you and i have talked about this sometimes the point with planning is it's not that you get necessarily that desired result but that you get an adjacent possible result from doing that particular plan if you didn't do the plan if you didn't execute it you would have never ha opened up these opportunities and it's okay that you had this particular plan because the future and our lives are just so beautifully complex that sometimes we just can't see what's going to emerge. Well, oh, you're so right. Yeah. This is a weird thing. Like you have to make the plan and execute on it, knowing that what may come from it may be completely different than what you think. It's, you're so right. And this is mindfulness is so helpful because if you just rigidly stay with your plan and just sort of don't recognize anything else, then you are, not living your life, you're living your plan. And there's 
always so many communications from the world coming in that are really, really crucial to hear. So let's talk about mindfulness, right? Because you said that you started um, and you had recently become a Buddhist. Now, most of our conversations, Susan, are, I mean, we talk about Buddhism, we talk about Taoism, we talk about all sorts of random and beautiful things, which is fantastic. But um, I know that you want to be careful about how much that you put Buddhism up front as opposed to mindfulness. Why is that? Um, well, I'm going to amend with that a little bit. I, by, I don't use the word mindfulness so much myself. I just say meditation. Mm-hmm. But mindfulness is good because everyone's like, oh, that's been scientifically proven. So we're not afraid of that. So, okay, cool. But the, I guess the way to illustrate this issue for me is my books go in the self-help section. They don't go in the Buddhist section. And I am very proud of that. I'm very happy about that. That was not intentional, but now I, with each book, I really hope or insist that it will go in self-help. Even though to me, they are Buddhist books. They are about Buddhism. They are about the Dharma, they are about these deep esoteric teachings that I've had the great privilege to study with true masters who actually know what they are talking about. And But there's no reason to couch these brilliant teachings in academic language unless you're an academic. And there's also no reason, equally no reason, to dumb anything down to, you know, five ways to be completely happy all the time and then sort of shoehorn some Buddhism light in there. You don't have to do those things. You can tell the whole, you can give the the whole message, but you don't have to call it anything except for common sense. Because to me, the whole Buddha Dharma, the great vast canon of you know, millennia of knowledge is like some extremely advanced form of common sense. And there's no way that it's not going to be helpful to people. So anyway, I just, I don't claim the Buddhist piece, except in my personal life. Yeah, I can completely understand where that's coming from, right? You know, given given the philosophy background here, because it, it's really funny, because if you lead with this is a Buddhist teaching, people either hear it one way, like, oh, this is really important, or they put up their barriers, like, oh, that's not my belief system, (laughs) right? That's so true. As opposed to just saying, here's what it is, and they can kind of get the the common sense nature of it, or the insight, or the profundity of it, and then saying, oh, by the way, that's from Aristotle, or that's from the Buddha, or that's from the Tao Te Ching, or that's from wherever. So, they kind of receive the message before they put up the filter um, and then they can process the filter later on. I think that's really, really right and smart and, and, you know, good observation that, that people either expect to hear something really foreign or that they get scared. Like, I don't, I, that's going to be too weird. And I don't know that I'm, I'm a Christian or I'm an agnostic and I don't want to be pulled into any of that, which is right. You shouldn't be pulled into anything. But one of the things that I love about 
the lineage that I have been studying in now for 20 years, the Shambhala Buddhist lineage, is that the lang I love the language of the way the teachings are presented. You know, it, it's the, the words and phrases like war warriorship and the genuine heart of sadness and authentic presence and auspicious coincidence and you know these are words that just have so much resonance and are so powerful and there's there's no need to use any other words that they are referring to really profound and ancient buddhist teachings but you know that's not relevant let's talk about since we're so so much on top of just the the um the simplicity of the words right um uh, of the lineage that you're from let's talk about the open heart project right um because i think this was from my perspective and, and correct me if i'm wrong this is one of those watershed events for you in the sense that it was your first attempt of actually pulling together your own community of practitioners um and that's been a lot of ups and it's been you know some major learning points and so on and so forth so absolutely tell us how the open heart project originated well it's it's well the open heart project just is like you said it's a free program that anyone who signs up for it gets two 10-minute meditation instructional videos from me per week on mondays and thursdays and each one is preceded by a little talk two minutes to ten minutes long usually two or two to five minutes and I started doing this for a couple reasons one is I would teach I teach retreats all over the place and then I would say well if you want to keep meditating when you go home find a meditation teacher go to a meditation center and then someone would say I live in Utah we don't have that or I live in Bulgaria or I just moved to Colombia we don't have those so I was like, well, what would really help, I think, is if, if you could just like meet anyone and say, okay, let, I'm going to come to your house a couple times a week. We're going to sit down and meditate together, and you just have to open the door, let me in, mm -hmm. and then I'll take it from there. I think that would be helpful. So that's what I started doing. I will send you this video. You can delete it. You can play it. You can replay it. You can whatever you want to do with it. But all you have to do if you want to meditate is push play. And then, or click play, is more accurate way to say it. And I'll do the rest. That was one reason I started it. And the other reason I started it is completely mundane, which is I used to work in the music business. I, it's obvious what's happening in publishing. Nobody needs to be a rocket scientist to, 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 say, to see that it's crumbling. And there's, there's going to be the superstars that get big publishing deals, and there's going to be everybody else. And the mid list is going away, and no one's going to take time. No one will take time to develop your work. And in the music business, the people that survived the transition period—not the people who came after it, but the people that survived it—were the people that took matters into their own hands develop their own platforms now that's obvious but back then it wasn't so obvious so I thought well I need to I need to have that so that if my publishing I 
you know, situation. I don't want to be dependent on a book publisher who takes two years to put out a book and you don't earn a living from it and I need to figure out a different way to do it. So I want to build my list. I know, I'll teach people meditation. <laughs> Get their email addresses. And then, so that was the other reason. I wanted to, there was nothing that, you know, wish I could say it's because I'm a really good person and I really, you know, wanted to help all humankind. You know, yeah, okay, I did. But I also wanted to develop a, a way for myself to be independent. So very quickly it started to grow. There were like, I think there were like 800 people within the first couple months. And then at like the 18-month like mark, there were 10,000 people. And slowed down now, but there's 12,000 people. And it's become, I, it's like an actual community of really independent thinkers who, for whatever reason, can't or don't want to go somewhere to learn this. So, that's what has been the most, like, positively surprising thing that you've learned from the Open Heart Project? Well, the most, that's a great question. Um, can I say two things? Absolutely. One is, uh, I, I found that I, I, it is completely possible to teach these profound things virtually. You might think, well, you have to, it has, it's always been done this certain way for thousands of years, and how can you just put it out into the ether and carry forward what Buddhists call the transmission quality? Not just the explanation, but the transmission. It totally works. That has been a fantastic thing, and really, really hopeful. Not for me particularly, but in general. And then the other thing that I learned was how much people really want to talk to each other. And I did not think about that because I'm the kind of person that doesn't want to talk so much. <laughs> so I did not think anything about, oh, they might want to know each other. They might want to feel that they're part of a community until like probably almost two years had gone by. And so I'm very touched by that. It's not to do with me, but I'm, I'm very touched and inspired by their wish to communicate together and feel that they what they are, which is an international network of people who are brave enough to look at their own minds. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the intimacy vacuum that we have right now in the sense of we have all these technologies that make communication just amazingly possible. Like we can be around the world. You're in Boston right now, or just right outside of Boston, right? Um, and I'm in Portland. And we can have this conversation um, and see each other smile, so on and so forth, right? Amazing. At the same time, we're talking to each other more, but we're connecting with each other less. I don't know that I agree with that. I agree with we're talking to each other more. And maybe in a sense we are connecting with each other less, but what I, one other very surprising and interesting thing I found is that to the person on the other end, of this communication, in this case audio, but in my case video, it feels very personal. Mm -hmm. Because it's just you and me. Mm -hmm. 
and I can tell now when I go teach who is in the Open Heart Project because they smile and wave at me like like they know me and and you know it feels personal I feel oh we're friends and that's I'm not saying that in a disingenuous way I'm, it touches me so much because to the person on the other end it is a one-on-one -on -one conversation mm -hmm. and that is something that I don't think I would have ever thought of when I yeah. started doing I think we're saying the same thing. What what my commentary was about in sort of mass culture, like in the, the broader sociological trends, there's there's less connected with the communication. But there are these light posts. There are these you know communities where there is the use of of communication technology to actually generate authentic connection and meaning and community, right? And um, that's what's really exciting about the world today, right, is if you just look at what's available and you say, you know what, I'm going to do this with purpose and I'm going to do this with heart and I'm going to do this out of service. Amazing things happen. Um, I want to roll back something, too, because you mentioned that there were two reasons that you started the Open Heart Project, right? And so I, I like to talk about the convergence between what serves you and what serves other people as you found that convergence, right? Mm -hmm. People needed the, the meditation instruction and prompts and guidance and just the teacher, um, and you needed them for sustenance and mm -hmm. for your career. And mm -hmm. in that sweet spot between the two is where, where the magic of the open heart project became this, you know, thing where you could do it. Um, and it had these other reasons for you doing it, but also the people on the other end, um, could receive as well. So it's, you know, I, I think that's where a lot of the beauty, when you, when you can get, service to self service to others and then sprinkle in joy somewhere in there you know for that venn diagram just amazing things really start happening i agree and, and I, I finding not not taking action until you find that sweet spot or having your action being directed toward establishing that sweet spot is really important and i think we live in a world where people think i either can be of service or i can be a good business person and there is no reason to separate those. There just isn't. No. Um, there's a quote that I'm going to butcher and I can't remember who it's from, but it's like the business that makes nothing but profit hasn't made very much. That's good. Um, I'll find the quote somewhere in there and drop it in the show notes. Um, what was the most uncomfortable, surprising thing you learned from the Open Heart Project? It's mm, also a really good question. It's really hard to make this all work. It's, you know, I go online, I go on Facebook, unlike yourself, <laughs> and I see, you know, people are like going, I just made, you know, I just announced this program and it's already full and everyone's paying me $2 million each and it's incredible. I had no idea I was this awesome. And, and I'm like, I do not understand that. <laughs> I have never had an experience like that. It's, it's, tremendously hard work and and you don't have any idea if it's paying off and you have no idea if it's work you have no idea because you can't see anyone and I have launched things that I thought oh I really 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 need this to work because I'm really scared about money right now and everyone is telling me you can't do this for free what you've been doing it for free for too long you have you so they're scaring me and I scare myself and I've launched things that have just tanked 
And then the hard part for me is I get really sad and really down. And it's hard for me to pick myself up again. I just get really knocked down. And I take it personally, even though I know it's not personal. But it's been surprising in a difficult, negative way to find out how dependent I am on other people's, what I perceive as other people's response to me. Yeah. There's, there's a beauty in you, uh, Susan, because you, you exhibit this vast range of emotions in any given talk. So you can be really, really happy and then you can, you know, really talk about your sad part. And, and what's great is one of the things I appreciate most about you is that you're in touch with every one of those emotions. So you're not detached from it. You're aware that the feeling is there and you're feeling it, but you're not being governed by that particular feeling. Right. And um, Thank you. And, and I appreciate that a lot. It makes me feel good. And you used the word joy a little while ago and also when we were talking before we started recording. And to me, that is the joy, is the not limiting yourself to only wanting to feel good, but allowing yourself, encouraging yourself, teaching yourself, because you can't wallow in things, but teaching yourself how to skillfully enter your own heart, feel what's in your own heart, whether it feels happy or sad, the joy is in the intimacy with yourself. And it gives everything a kind of aliveness that is, makes things good. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Laughter, sadness. It's, 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 it's amazing. Um, so one more sort of, this is a general question, not about the Open Heart Project, but just in general. What's the most unexpected challenge that you're currently facing? My own practice, my personal practice, is, is a challenge for me. And it's a ch practicing is a challenge for everyone. So I'm not different than anyone else in that way. I'm not like, you know, the Dalai Lama here in my apartment in Somerville. I go through times where I don't practice. I go through times where I feel like, oh, my practice is so weak. And I go through times where it's like, oh, I think I figured it out. Um, I find that I may be over-relying on my own making of videos as my practice. And I have to keep my own personal practice deepening in order for those that work to have meaning. In order to even know what to say, otherwise it becomes kind of like a lie. So, that said, I have a friend <laughs> I think I had the good for I'm pretty I'm pretty serious about this whole Buddhist thing. <laughs> <laughs> You're pretty serious. It's only been a you know a few decades of, of work. That's right. <laughs> I'm, in. I'm I'm definitely in. But the, and I've done all these programs and I've taken all these gone on many retreats, length lengthy months at a time, and tried this practice and that practice and gone down the path as prescribed in my particular lineage. And and I won't make this too long, but I there comes. A, point in your practice, no matter what it is, where the steps as they've been laid out end. And I have a friend who practices in a yogic tradition, and in his tradition they call that phase stupefaction. <laughs> yep. Which no one can tell you what to do anymore. 
but you don't know what to do. Because you're used to relying on your teacher or a particular text or whatever, and you can't go back. I mean, I always have my teacher, but there's a point where you have to own it 110%. And so, you know, my hope is that I will be that. But I sort of feel in the tinges of that stupefaction in my own practice. <laughs> yeah, we were talking before this call that like July is my, my month of, I've been looking for the word stupefaction for a long time. So thank you for giving it back to me. But it's just one of those things where I, this is my month of stupefaction. And we're like, I don't, I don't know. No one can really tell me what to do. Like, and it's, it's awkward every year. Right. But I'm like, it's this period of time and then I'll have to rebuild whatever it is and kind of figure out my own way and then do that until the next July. And then I'll be here um, looking funny again. Um, but that's part of life. You know, I think we can we should go through periods of self-mastery. Right. And people have different feelings about the word self-mastery, but it's one of my favorite sort of concepts. Right. Self-mastery. And then you start to fall off of your self-mastery practices, right? Because they require maintenance. That's why That's why it's mastery. It's not like, you know, self-help pill where you take it and you're done. It requires a general cultivation. So you fall off the wagon. And then there's this phase where either you fall off the wagon or you just – there's a sense of just stupefaction or your practices aren't working or you're just not there. And I think the beauty of that point is that, especially for teachers – it reminds you what it feels like not to know, not to not to be able to do it and to be at that beginner's mind space all over again. Um, and then you spend the next bit of time like teaching yourself again. And if you're in a teaching capacity, you can teach others what you're teaching yourself, but just from a, a higher evolu- evolution of that particular phase. So it's it's a beautiful part of the process. I agree. And it really helps if you can find your own awkwardness interesting. Yeah. If you yeah. think it's a sign of failure or like, oh, this is a big problem I have to solve, then you've actually ceased to be curious about it. And it, anyway, it just it helps if you can find your own awkwardness kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah, well, it helps. And part of the awkwardness for public experts, right, like yourself, right, is that people anticipate that your practice is golden. You have everything figured out. This is all oh. easy for you, like all that type of stuff, right? That's the sort of expectation. Um, you dig behind the, screen, the scenes a little bit, you, you figure, you see that that's not always the case. Um, I'm sure the Dalai Lama might sometimes wake up and is like, you know what, I have no idea what I'm doing today. Uh, <laughs> and then he might have his own practice for coming up with that. But I don't know, that goes into sacred spaces that I want to step slowly away from. Right, right. Um, what is most exciting to you right now? Well, I'm very excited to launch phase two of the Open Heart Project, which now that there's been enough people, even for a couple of years, that have been doing 10 minutes of meditation twice a week, that want more. And I'm very in love with those people. I'm very excited about that. So I'm looking for that sweet spot again, where I can offer something of benefit and charge what I think is a pretty small amount of money for it and make that my sustaining income. That's my dream. I'm launching it in September. I don't know what to call it yet. So right now I'm just calling it the Open Heart Project Membership Program. I don't, I don't know what to call it, but it's just it's going to be $27 a month. And you can cancel anytime. Mm-hmm. And it's a more concerted practice. And 
I'm really excited to be developing the curriculum for that. And I'm working now with a small beta group to test the curriculum, and they seem to really be enjoying it and giving me good feedback, positive and negative. So I'm super, super excited to take what, for me, is this giant, giant leap off the, off the high dive into I don't know what. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about circular motion and coming back full circle, right? Because it's interesting. You mentioned that you started the Open Heart Project because you saw where traditional publishing was going, right? And you have eight books, again, one of them bestseller, right? Um, and yet, right, you're, you're redoing the Open Heart Project membership, and you have a traditional published book called Start Here Now coming out next year. Yes, I do. So let's talk about that journey. How did that come about? And, and why is now the right time for you to do the traditional published book? Just talk a little bit about that. Oh, I appreciate you asking that. Yeah, I wrote Start Here Now as an ebook that I was going to self-publish. I'm like, okay, let's test this platform thing. And let me just write, capture everything I tell people about meditation. And the title Start Here Now came to me, which I really like. And I wrote it. And then it was all coincidence. I... I ran into an editor I know who was very kindly who said, I always want to look at whatever you're working on, so please don't hesitate to send it to me. And I'm sitting at my desk going, I'm overwhelmed with things. How do I figure out iBooks author and, you know, or pay a lot of money for someone to, how do I distribute it? I really like this book. I'd like it to have a wider audience. And so I just said, okay, well, I'm working on this ebook. I'll send it to you. And she really liked it. And then my agent reminded me that my existing publisher has an option, so I shouldn't have sent it to her. So we sent it to my existing publisher, Simon Schuster, and they really liked it. So I was, got very excited because there's something great about having someone else really like it. But the thing about Simon & Schuster is they could not put it out until 2016. This was just a few months ago, so like, what, two years? No. <laughs> but the other publisher could put it out in 2015. So anyway, I just decided to do it, and it's that's just sort of my MO, is if something appears, mm -hmm. if I get an invitation, I almost always say yes. Mm -hmm. but whenever I try to bypass the invitation and just invite myself to do things, for me, karmically, well, I don't know why, that just doesn't work. I always seem to have to wait for someone to invite me. <laughs> so we're getting back to that happy accident. Happy accident, exactly. Back thing, I end up backing into it. And, and also I think that the instructive point, for me anyway, is when someone or something shows up in your purview that asks you something, you should listen. It doesn't mean you have to say yes. You're getting a communication, not just from that person, but from the world. And my whole professional life, I never went to college, I didn't get any training, has just been, you know, following those invitations. And there's long periods where there are no invitations. It's scary, but so far, so good. So far, so good. Indeed. Um, eight books, another one on the way. Um, the, the great success of the Open Heart Project. Um, yeah, it seems to be working. Um, 
If you could leave people with just one message or sort of one thing to think about, what would that be? Um, don't be afraid to feel. That's where all of the information is. That's amazing. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap this one up. Again, this is Susan Piver from SusanPiver.com. I really hope you check her out and the Open Heart Project. Susan, thanks so much for spending your time with us um, today. Hope to see you on a future episode as well. Maybe we'll riff about meditation a bit more. We'll see where that goes. But again, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.